Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, the 11th chapter. Nehemiah chapter 11. Now we've had some wonderful lessons in the book of Nehemiah. And chapter 11 and 12, there's just uh, places that we will skip through because there's so many uh, names and listings of the names of various uh, groups of the families of Israel. But there are some high points. I hate to miss this 11th and 12th chapter just for because there are so many names that we have of various things that are happening here. And we'll try to cover the 11th and 12th chapter at various chosen verses. And then we get into the 13th chapter probably in our next lesson. We won't be able to cover all this tonight. But uh, we'll just skip through the 11th and 12th chapter because there are some important verses and yet there's some things that I don't want to drag on and on with names. But... Uh, in the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 1, we'll just, uh, I'll tell you when we'll skip down to another verse. But let's take uh, verse 1. It says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. So here we have the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the earlier part of this chapter. And then beginning with verse 20, you have the residents of the, all the other cities of Judah. Look at verse 20. And the residue of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. So if you wanted to cover this whole chapter, you would cover it in this way. The residents of Jerusalem, and then the residents of all the other cities of Judah that are, are the other people. Now there were reasons for this division that we'll get into in a moment. But if you look at the uh, first verse, it says, One of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. Jerusalem's called the holy city. And it says, And the people blessed, blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. They did this for their uh, preservation and for the defense of the city. Remember, Nehemiah had rebuilt it because of all the problems that they had faced before. And the walls were broken down and the gates were broken down and he came back to restore it. And he did restore it with the help of all the people worked together and they prayed and they worked and they protected. And so now after this is all done, he wants to make sure it's secure. And these people were wise people and they were happy people. If you notice verse 2, the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. They had full cooperation. They had... Uh, a happy fellowship with one another. And notice that it says in verse 2, they willingly offered themselves. And those that willingly offered themselves were blessed. Now in verse 3, it says, Now these are the chief of the province that dwelt in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah dwelt everyone in his possession in their cities, to wit, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the Nethanims, and the children of Solomon's servants. We might say that these people were not only blessed, but they were—they all were willing, and they were wise, and they were contented. They were happy to do what God wanted them to do. And you know, you and I as a church, we need to have the same loyalty in the church that these people had for their city and for their work that they were doing. We need loyalty in carrying out the things of God. We'll skip on down now to verse 9. Notice it says, And Joel, the son of... Zechariah was their overseer, and Judah the son of Senu was the second over the city. We find that there was a second deputy uh, in 
the cases of most of those that had a chief deputy over the city, they had a second one. Uh, let's just take verse 11. It says, Sariah, and then down to the bottom says, was the ruler of the house of God. They had people in special positions. Look in verse 14. And their brethren, mighty men of valor, and 128. So the brethren were spoken of. All of these pertain to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and positions that they held. You know, everyone has a certain position to hold and a certain place to fill. And when they were going around the walls, if you'll remember, every man stood in a certain place and he did his designated work as they rebuilt the walls of the city. Nehemiah was a man that could get the people uh, to be, uh, what should I say, instructed as to their position and cooperate in filling their position. And that's what we need today is people that will fill their position, whatever it is. And there are no small places to fill. All of the places of God's service are important. And sometimes we underestimate the value of certain individuals that maybe do not have the, we'll call it the limelight in the things of God. But they're just as important and sometimes even more so than others that uh, you may see their faces before you all the time. Especially those that pray for God's work to, to go on. We have what we call prayer warriors. And if you pray for God's work and God's servants, you're playing a great part in all that is, is being done. Because without their prayers, you know, Paul said, And pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And every preacher, if Paul needed that, how much more do we as preachers need it today? or deacons, or whoever we may be that work and serve God. So, in the things of God, there are no big ones and little ones. We're all just servants of God and children of God. And uh, as far as our priestly work, you know, we have arguments today as to who should be a priest in the churches. And we have uh, these various arguments about uh, whether you should have uh, women priests or men priests and so on and so forth. Well, really... The bottom line is, neither one, because we're all priests in our own right before God. And I'm no more a priest than you are a priest as a, as a person in the pew. The Bible tells us He's made us a kingdom of priests. I'm a preacher, and I'm a teacher, but I, when I function as a priest, I function as a, a believer, as a child of God. And that's the only way. And that's where you have the same right. Everyone has the same right to come boldly to the throne of grace. And if you'll read that in the book of First uh, Peter chapter 2, you'll find that he's made us a kingdom of priests as believers. And every believer has that position. Now then, when you get down to verse 20, we already mentioned that the, it's talking about all the other places that they dwell. And the residue of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. They had special inheritances given to them. Verse uh 22 says, The overseer also of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzzah, the son of Banna, the son of uh, Hashabah, the son of Madanah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph. The singers, now look at this, the singers were over the business of the house of God. It shows how important the music was back in the singers back in the Old Testament. Now if you skip over to verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now these are the priests and the Levites that went with 
up with uh, Zerubbabel. Now, this is the whole, is not the whole of the priests and Levites, but the chief of them that went up with him. And that verse 7 says, these were the chief of the priests and of their brethren in the days of Jeshua. So we find there were priests, there were chiefs among them that represented certain groups of them. Now then, let's go on down in this uh, 12th chapter to verse uh, 27, I mean 25. It says, and it names them, and it says, were porters keeping the ward at the thresholds of the gates. He, these were the ones that were there for protection, <clears throat> possibly some temporary movable shelters, the thresholds, for those who took care of the gates, the ward at the thresholds of the gates. Now we find in verse uh, 30, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people. Verse 31 says, Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks, whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall and toward the dung gate. So you have, especially in verse 30, those that purified themselves. Now then, Jesus alone can purify us from sin. Titus 2 verse 14 tells us that. But we also have a work of purification in our own lives. Even though He's the one that purifies us from all sin and cleanses us, the, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1. Yet we have a job to do to purify our own lives. We're responsible for how we live and the purity of our own lives in, to a certain extent. In other words, Let's put it this way. You can go out here and you can live an impure life. You're responsible and you'll reap what you sow. But you're also encouraged to purify your life. Now, I'm not talking about a salvation by works or anything of that nature. I'm talking about cleansing ourselves. Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 1, Having therefore, dearly beloved, these promises, let us cleanse ourselves, listen carefully, from all filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now look, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. He says, let us do that. That's what we're responsible. He says, of the flesh and of the Spirit. We know he's not talking about the Holy Spirit there because the Holy Spirit needs no cleansing. It's our own spirit that needs to be cleansed. And it's our own spirit that needs to be made right with God. And uh, to keep the wrong things out of our lives and out of our thoughts and out of our minds. So we have that responsibility. Now then, uh, if you drop on down in chapter 12, we'll find some other things. <clears throat> Let's go back to to verse 27, though. I skipped over verse 27. I want to get that, and then we'll come down to verse 43 and verse 44. I'm just trying to give you some of the highlights that have some meat of, of a spiritual message in them. Verse 27, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals and psalteries and with harp. The dedication with gladness is spoken of here. This dedication of the wall of Jerusalem that had been rebuilt and restored, you know, it was time for them to, to be happy about what had happened. And this dedication with gladness was a unifying bond for the people. When Sometimes when a church uh, has a rebuilding program or has a, a something that they're improving upon, well, there's a dedication. And it's a unifying bond for the people of the church. It was a unifying bond in their case. It was an occasion for hearty thanksgiving. When I look back and think of the 
things that this church has gone through, and I'm sure most every local church can have kind of the same testimony. And you think of the progress you've made through the years and how you started and how you are now. And I don't want to bore you with history, but just mention that we started an old building up in Midtown Riadosa. You have uh, in the office there pictures of various groups that were baptized and the individuals also. I mean, the group picture first and then the individuals in those groups showing their baptism. And uh, then we ended up getting a little piece of property down here. Had to borrow $1,300. Can you imagine having to borrow $1,300 in 1959 or 60 and get five or six men to sign the note because, you know, the bank wouldn't let you have money without some signatures. And uh, so as a down payment on these lots that we're sitting on right now. And I tell you, in those days, it was a struggle. Some of you can't believe that nowadays. You spend more than that, you know, in a couple of three weeks on groceries and stuff <laughs> if you eat anything. But uh, in those days, money was very tight, and uh, very few people had any money. We started out, and we paid a down payment, you know, on this property, and finally we started a bond program and built this little building, and it was a struggle, and it was paid off in 1977. Since then, we've been out of debt, and we bought a piece of property over here, about $75,000 piece of property, and we got it for $48,000 and financed it for... 12 years and paid it off in 10 months. So I think the Lord was good to us, don't you? And when you look at those things, sometimes they're a time of rejoicing. In this, uh, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, we find that it was a unifying bond for the people. You know, we look at what God is. We can say, to God be the glory. That's the title of our hymn book, isn't it? And if you'll notice the little symbol on the front of it. Great things he has done, and yet we can rejoice in what God has done through the years, and certainly it's an occasion for uh, hearty thanksgiving. We can thank God for it. It was a time of great gladness. They recognized the faithful builders. It didn't happen without some work going along the way. When Nehemiah and they were rejoicing over and dedicating uh, the walls of Jerusalem, after the work that they had gone through, they were not just saying, God sent an angel down from heaven and put these walls back up and the gates on their hinges and restored everything. He was saying God was with us in helping us to do the work that He laid upon our hearts to do. And they did the work faithfully. And we go back there and tell how many days, it wasn't it, 52 days, the work was done. I think it's uh, back in... Probably the eighth chapter long in there. But anyway, you, you'll find it back there that the work was done and completed. I think it was 52 or 54 days. But that was a great work that they had accomplished. And they could thank God that He gave them the wisdom, the strength, the leadership, the guidance, the help that they needed, and the materials. Remember, when Nehemiah started out to build uh, the king gave him all this material and gave him letters and gave him timbers and gave him all that he needed and gave him leave from his work. And it was just God was in it from the beginning to the end. And that's what I like to see is God being in a work from the beginning to the end. And he was certainly in that. And so they recognized the, tr the true faithful builders. And the dedication was not to them, but it was unto God. They dedicated the work that was done unto God. So that verse 27 is a very important verse. Now, I want us to uh, drop on down to verse uh, 43. 
Verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Now what did they do? This verse, chapter 12, verse 43. They offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Doesn't the Bible say the joy of the Lord is thy strength? And God is the one that gives us a reason to rejoice. And here it says, the wives also and the children rejoice, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. How do you like that verse? The joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Now I want you to notice this verse as related to great joy. This joy followed great sacrifices. Look at the verse 43. And also that day they offered great sacrifices. Great sacrifices. You know, when we sacrifice greatly, usually the end thereof is great joy. We never give up anything or do anything or sacrifice anything that doesn't bring a blessing. And when we put something into it, we get something out of it. Just like Brother Wendell was mentioning putting something into uh, the young people. We get something out of it. And that what you get out of it, did not Paul quote Jesus and say that it was said of Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive? And if you don't find that true in your own life, you just try it as an experiment. I get a greater joy and a greater blessing out of giving than I do receiving. And yet, on the other hand, we have to learn to be receivers too. I remember our friend Clayton Bennett out here used to have Bennett's uh, jewelry and preached his wife and his funeral boat. And the last time I saw him, he was over here in the hospital and he was, his, he'd already uh, come to the place. He didn't have any strength or anything. And he said uh, he, was, he didn't want anything they had to eat. And I said, well, brother... I said, Clayton, I said, would you eat a bowl of soup if I'd get it for you? Oh, yeah, his eyes brightened up. And I chased the nurse down. And I said, you go get him a bowl of soup. So she went and got that bowl of soup. And I was feeding him. And, and he just eating every bite of it. It was the best thing. It seemed like the best thing that he ever had to eat. Because all the other stuff they brought, he couldn't eat and didn't want it. Anyway, when I was there visiting the hospital, he reached over and he grabbed me around the neck and he kissed me on the cheek. And I thought, well, an old lifetime friend. But uh, it, he, he's the one that told me one time I was always giving to other people. And he'd always, I'd go out to the Indian shop there and he'd give me a pair of, uh, what is it, elk skin, elk skin moccasins? I think it's elk. They're real soft. He'd give me a pair of moccasins and I'd say, and, well, first he'd give me a pair to take to Louise, my wife. And then he'd say, now, Brother Joyce, I want you to have a pair of these. And I said, no, you've given me these. I said, that. he says, you've got to learn to accept gifts as well as give them. And he's the one that taught me and told me that it was necessary that I learn how to receive as well as to give. And we have to be on both ends of that line, but it's still a blessed thing if we can give. Now, notice they gave great sacrifices and rejoiced. This joy followed great sacrifices. And this joy, notice, it says, For God made them to rejoice. This joy came from God. And this joy was shared by the entire family. Look, the wives and the children rejoiced. And this joy was a testimony, for it reached afar off. Look at the latter part of the verse. So that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Now, when you and I can have happiness in ourselves and happiness with all of our families, a joy in our families, and a happiness that is God-given and then a happiness that is a testimony because it reaches afar off, then it's what God would have us to have. Now, let's drop on down to verse 44, if you will. 
And at the appointed time were some appointed, at that time rather, were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the first fruits, and for the tithes, to gather them uh, into together into them out of the fields of the cities the portions of the of the law for the priests and the Levites for Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited and both the singers and the porters kept the ward of their God and the ward of the purification according to the commandment of uh, <coughs> David and of Solomon his son notice that there were several appointed at that time some appointed were some appointed there were several that were appointed some means more than one. And they were officially appointed to fill these positions. It's something to have uh, someone appointed in the church for a certain work. But I believe with all my heart that they're to be officially appointed by the church. They're to have a position that everyone knows that they were put in that position because the whole church agreed upon it. And that's why we have uh, our deacons, our trustees... We have the chairman of the board of trustees and vice chairman. And we have the uh, trustees themselves. And they're all approved and appointed uh, by the church, appointed by the pastor and approved by the church. They were faithful in distributing the funds. Notice this. They were appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the first fruits, and for the tithes. They were faithful in dispersing the funds that they received into their uh, treasuries. And we certainly need, as far as our finances of the church, those that are faithful in in taking care of the funds and dispersing the funds of the church. It inspired all Israel to be faithful givers. You know, if you have people that are faithful over the responsibility of the funds, then the people that are giving to the funds do not mind being inspired. They are greatly inspired to give because they know their money is going to be used in the right way and taken care of in the right way. And I believe that's important in a church, that the finances of the church be taken care of in the right way. Now then, in verse 47, we have another thing. We're just giving some highlights of this chapter. And all Israel, look at verse 47, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave portions of the singers and port and porters every day his portion, and they sanctified holy things unto the Levites, and the Levites sanctified them unto the children of Aaron. Here was a call to purity, and here's how everything was taken care of. All Israel, everyone that was entitled to portions, the singers and the porters and the Levites, all of these things were taken care of in their proper way. We read in the 13th chapter, and we're not there yet as far as the text is concerned, but it says, why is Nehemiah came back and he found things in disorder? And he had to set them right. And he said, why is the house of God forsaken? And we've given you this before. I think I mentioned it last week in our lesson. It's not that the people were not present in the house of God. But the house of God, as far as the ministry of it and taking care, uh, was being neglected by the people. And they had neglected to give their tithes and their offerings. And that's why it was forsaken. And that's what he's talking about. That's the proper context of that verse, why is the house of God forsaken? It's not the context of no people. It's the context of people not giving. And you'll read that when we get over in the 13th chapter. Well, let's get at verse 11 and 12. Verse 10. Verse 10 through 12 in the 13th chapter. It says, And I perceive that the portions of the Levites 
had not been given them. Nehemiah was a great overseer. He knew what was going on. And he could tell when something was going wrong, too. And he says, I perceive that the portion of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. They had to leave the work they were called to do, and they had to flee through their fields to try to to uh, to make a living, try to get their needs supplied. In verse 11, Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? It was forsaken of their leadership, and their leadership was forsaken of the of their needs. And I gathered them together and set them in their place, then brought... Then... Now what happened to change it? Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and of the new wine and of the oil unto the treasuries. The word treasuries there means storehouses. If you have a marginal reference, it says storehouses. And that's why later on in the book of Malachi, the Lord said, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive. Now, when we get to the 13th chapter at verse 1, we'll start that and we'll finish it in the next lesson. I know we don't have time tonight, but we'll start in the 13th chapter. We've just kind of given you an overall of important verses in the 11th and 12th chapter. But the 13th we can cover more fully because there's not so many names to read over and over again. And so we'll pick that up with verse 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. We're going to talk about the relationships of Israel to the mixed multitude and to people that were not to be mixed with them. And in this chapter, you're going to have a call to purity of life. And Nehemiah has to set a lot of things right at the cost of great sorrow to many, I'm sure. If you remember, the Ammonite and the Moabite were descendants of Lot. They were descendants of Lot through an illicit relationship with his two daughters, which God... Uh, said brought a curse upon these two, the Ammonites and the Moabites. But even under the curse, people can be forgiven. You and I all were under the curse, weren't we? The Bible says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Have we continued in all things? No, we have not. And the Bible says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3, verse 13, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So we talk about the Ammonites and the Moabites being under the curse. And yet we find back in the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabitess. And she was under the curse. This same curse is spoken of here. And she had to be redeemed. And in the book of Ruth, there was a great kinsman redeemer, typical of Jesus, Boaz, that redeemed her from that curse and set her completely free and gave her a new relationship with himself, actually. But she could not legally inherit the blessings that she later did inherit because he stood in her place as a kinsman redeemer. He forgave her and restored all the land of her mother-in-law to her and to Ruth. And in the bargain, there was complete forgiveness and redemption. And in that book, there's a story of redemption. And you and I have been redeemed from the curse that we're under. 
But here it says the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, and hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. If you go back and read the history of how that Balaam was hired to, to curse Israel. And you know, he tried, but he couldn't. God would not permit it to be done. God turned the curse that he had into a blessing. And instead of cursing Israel, he blessed Israel. You know, God can turn things around from what is not to something that is. You read in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn to there just a moment. Time's getting away. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to notice verse 27. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, I want you to notice this last statement. And things which are not to bring to naught Things that are. So he can change things and twist them around. And he can even make the wrath of man, the Bible says, to praise him. So when we find God at work, he can do mighty things regardless of what the obstacle is. And as far as Balaam, back in our text now, is concerned, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 2, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water and hired Balaam against them that he should curse them, Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. In verse 3 now, I want you to notice. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. We have the relationship of Israel to the mixed multitude. Remember when Israel came out of Egypt, out of bondage? A mixed multitude came with them. But if you study back in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy especially, you'll find that the mixed multitude, and even the book of Numbers, caused Israel to follow after their murmuring, and they began to murmur and complain against God, uh, Moses and against God. And it's the mixed multitude influence that the children of Israel had that worked against them all through their wilderness journeys. And if you do not believe that the mixed multitude in the Christian realm does not cause you trouble... Remember what Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he goes ahead and tells us the compromise in fellowship will cause great trouble. By the way, that's our Sunday school lesson for next Sunday. I think that's where we left off this morning, wasn't it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. So, the Lord forbade the mixing of the people of God with the nations that knew not God. So, to lose their identity. And one of the chief dangers that we face today is mixing with the world. Our relationship should be with God's people. You say, well, we're in the world. Yes, Jesus said we're in it, but we're not of it. And we're not to be of the world. Now, we're to, to go out and witness to people in the world. We're to get people that are, not, that are unbelievers to become believers. We're to preach and to teach and to witness. But you're not to be out associating with them in their social lives and in so many ways being entangled with those who are unbelievers. You say, preacher, that's narrow-minded. Well, you read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through the rest of the chapter, and you'll see that there cannot be that kind of yoking together. You cannot yoke yourself together in a business life. Say, for instance, you want a business partner, and you choose a person here that's a good friend, uh, and, you know, uh, 
from the world standpoint, a pretty good fellow. And you're a Christian, and he is not a Christian. And when it comes right down to it, when you start doing your business, there are going to be errors in your life that you will want to do one thing and he'll want to do something else because he has no scruples about how he deals with the world. It's all money and power and gain as far as he's concerned. And you may feel a little bit different about it when you start making some of the deals you make. And that's true in, in the business life. It's true in other realms of our lives. That you cannot be in that kind of position. That's why that it's better when you have a couple that's coming to get married that you encourage them and talk to them and find out if they both believe the same thing. If they're, if they're Christians, first of all, and if they believe in going to the same church, there's a lot of families that are split up because the husband wants to go to one church and the wife wants to go to another church. Maybe one wants to go to church and the other one doesn't want to go at all. And you have bad relationships because of the fact we don't look at it up front before it starts. If we get those things settled before they start, then you don't have as many problems. And that doesn't mean that marriage is not... uh, to be respected, whether it be in the believer or unbeliever, because God says marriage is honorable in all. And it is something that uh, uh, we consider the institution as holy. And people certainly ought to get married if they're going to live together. We have a lot of people living together that are not married. And that's wrong in the sight of God. And someone said, well, preacher, would you marry a believer and an unbeliever? Yes, I would. But I'd talk to them and I'd tell them that the institution itself is that they're doing this under God, but on the other hand, their lives would be better if they were both Christians. And uh, because I regard the institution, just like our uh, civil laws and civil government, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 14 that that the civil laws or the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, and you know, he, he says, he goes on to tell about the judges and the police officers, and he says that they bear not the sword in vain, but they're to execute judgment upon evildoers. That does not mean that every judge and every policeman and every law enforcement man is a Christian, but it means their office is ordained of God. Now, we have many that are Christians. We have a lot that are not Christians. But we still have to respect the office. We have to respect the office that they have. Whether that person is a Christian or not a Christian, because the powers that be ordained of God. God has set up civil government. Where would we be without laws and without the enforcement of them? So anyway, we find that the mixed multitude here, now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. We'll get into that separation in our next lesson. We won't have time to go into it, but this uh, 13th chapter, the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah is very interesting. And we'll talk about several relationships, the mixed multitude, their relationship to false uh, professors, those that profess to be uh, religious, and their relationship to the house of God, and their relationship to the Sabbath, the day of rest, that's verse 22. And then the marriage relationship, on down verse 23 through 25, we'll find all kinds of relationships dealt with in this 13th chapter. And so we'll teach that in our next lesson this Wednesday night, the Lord willing. We thank you for your patience and your kind attention. We'll stand and be dismissed in prayer.